Wow, it's a powerful song. Great selection, Brian. If you'd open your Bibles to Nahum chapter 3 tonight, Nahum chapter 3, we're going to be looking at the first seven verses of this third chapter of this book, which, which say this, Nahum chapter 3, beginning at verse 1, Woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage, her prey never departs. The noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you and say, Nineveh is devastated. Who will grieve for her? Where will I seek comforters for you? Let's pray. Father, this is a very sober text to read. We know that all of these scriptures are very important. They're inspired by you and they're given for our instruction. And when you think through the ramifications of this text tonight, it is quite moving and quite threatening. And I pray that you would just allow your spirit to allow this passage to minister to us in the way it's designed to in this grace age. And we'll thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. I love the story of Jonah. It's a story probably most of you know. He's given an assignment by God as a prophet of God to go to Nineveh and preach. And he doesn't want the job. He wanted Nineveh to actually be destroyed by God, and he didn't want to go to Nineveh and preach because he felt that the possibility was there that the people of Nineveh would respond, and then, and then God wouldn't destroy them. So you know the story. He decided, I will go to Joppa, and I'll get on a boat, and I'll cross the Mediterranean, and I'll go to Spain. I'll just flee this assignment and get out of here. Well, he got out in the middle of that Mediterranean. God sent a storm. God sent a storm, and God just basically tracked him down. I mean, he just said, well, you're running from me. I'll just track you down. And then he used the great fish, as you know, to take him back to the shore. And ultimately, he had to go to Nineveh. He had to preach. But in that story of the book of Jonah, God tracked Jonah down. In this story, God tracks Nineveh down. Now, we may observe in verse 1 that it starts with the word woe, hoi in Hebrew. Hoy, it's a serious word. And whenever you read that in the Bible, things are not good. In fact, when you use this word in the context of judgment, which this is the context of it, judgment, it describes the worst kind of judgments. A woe judgment is the most severe level of God's judgments. In the Old Testament, the vast amount of uses of the word woe occur in the writings of the prophets. The word is used some 51 times in the Old Testament. 70% of those are used by the prophets. It's used 36 times by the prophets, 17 times in Isaiah, 4 times in Jeremiah, 3 times in Ezekiel, 2 times in Amos, 1 time in Micah, 1 time in Nahum, 5 times in Habakkuk, 2 times in Zephaniah, 1 time in Zechariah. Why is it used so much by those prophets? 
Well, the answer lies in the fact that just before the Lord Jesus Christ comes back to take over the world, God's going to hit this world. He's going to hit it hard. He's going to pour out the most ferocious judgments this world has ever seen, and the prophets are those who reveal that. Now, it's interesting when you go through the book of Revelation that there's another city that gets woe judgments. In fact, I'd like you to go over to Revelation 18 for just a minute because I want to make a point on this. In Revelation chapter 18, just hold your finger here in Nahum and go over to Revelation chapter 18. I want you to notice there's another city that's discussed here. It's called Babylon. I believe it's literal Babylon in Iraq, close to Baghdad. That's where this is actually located, and I do believe this is going to become a key part of the world that God's going to destroy just before the Lord Jesus Christ returns. And you'll notice in Revelation 18 and verse 10, we read, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, whoa, whoa, there's her whoa word, the great city Babylon, a strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. Drop down to verse 16, saying, whoa, whoa. The great city, she who was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such a great wealth has been laid waste. Drop down to verse 19. And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she had been laid waste. Now, what we learn by that statement there in Revelation, what we learn by the woe statement in the book of Nahum, is there are times in the program of God, in the history of God, where he targets a specific city. And he targets it with a ferocious judgment. He's doing that right here. That's what he's promising to do. And what Nahum was trying to communicate here by beginning this with a woe judgment is that these godless powers... These godless places, these godless people who have done horrible things against God and they have done horrible things to God's people, they're going to see God turn against them in a ferocious way with a woe judgment. That's the worst of all kinds of judgments. And when God does turn against people in a woe judgment, he destroys them and there won't be one thing anybody can do to stop it. Now, in any dispensation, God reaches a point where he can say, I've just had enough. I've had enough. I've seen enough. In any historical period, God makes or can make a decision that I'm just done with this God-mocking individual. I'm just done with this God-mocking state. I'm just done with this God-mocking nation. God can basically reach a point where he says, I'm done. I've had enough. Dr. Warren Wearsby said that there does come a time when God's hand of judgment falls and it can come against an individual, it can come against a nation. Listen, you don't want to play a game with God in your relationship. You don't want to play a game. You want to deal honestly and openly in your relationship with the Lord. That's very critical. Even as believers, we want to function that way because we can actually move God to the point that he gets mad at his own children. To the point that he can, as Paul has said in 1 Corinthians and Jesus said to the seven churches of Revelation, he can do some devastating negative things to his own people. Now what Nahum does here in the third chapter in these first seven verses is grammatically fascinating. Because what he does is he basically gives a list of the sins in verses 1 and 4. And then in between that list of sins in verse 1 and verse 4, he establishes what God's going to do because of those sins. 
And the only thing I can figure out here is that apparently he wants this to stand out. What he does is he sandwiches these sins in between what God says he's going to do who've made mockery of him and his word so that it would stand out and jump out at people. And Dr. Charles Feinberg made an interesting observation. He said, when that Assyrian leadership and when that city of Nineveh decided they were going to do horrible things that were beyond the realm of what God wanted them to do to Israel, God basically said, that's it. That's it. I've seen enough and I've had enough. Now, God had promoted this place. He had promoted these people, the Assyrians, to power. He had allowed them to come into power, but they misused their power. They did not use it in the way that was right. They abused their power. So God says, all right, I'm going to step in and woe to you when I do. Now, there are two main parts to this, pretty simple to see. First of all, we get the reasons why God is going to bring a woe judgment on Nineveh. In verse 1, woe to the bloody city, completely full of lies and pillage. Her prey never departs. Drop down to verse 4, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. What God does here, as G. Campbell Morgan observed, is he's going to establish why he's going to do what he's going to do. And the description of what this city and these political leaders had done demanded that he give them a woe judgment. The primary target here is the city of Nineveh, which was, as we've mentioned before, the capital of Assyria and the Assyrian Empire. But when things are mentioned here, it refers to more than to just Nineveh, because the truths that are here can be true for any nation, any state, any individual at any time. What we get in verse 1 and verse 4 is we get a catalog, a catalog of specific things that literally will bring the judgment of God. These are the kinds of things that if they're implemented in a nation, if they're implemented in a state, if they're implemented in an individual, these are the kinds of things that can actually bring the judgment of God. Now, to this point in the book of Nahum, Nahum has been discussing kind of abstract concepts as to the judgment of God. Now he's going to get real specific. He's going to get very specific with a list of things that they had been doing that was the reason for the judgment. And the first reason is Nineveh was a capital city in power that was a brutal and bloody city. It opens up, woe to the bloody city. This power was just a bunch of killers. I mean, these people were a bunch of bloodthirsty people, didn't bat an eye at shedding blood of innocent people. They didn't care. Now, this is interesting because there have been some tablets found in Mesopotamia, which is modern-day Iraq. There have been some tablets that have been found there, and on those tablets, Asher Nasser Paul who lived about 100 years before Jonah, about 200 years before Nahum, he actually described what he did to people when he was headquartered in Nineveh and he was out there conquering the world with the Assyrian army. And I'm going to read what was on the inscription that was on the tablets that were found in Iraq. Babu, the son of Buba, I flayed at the city of Arbella, and I spread his skin on the city wall. I flayed all the chief men who had revolted, and I covered the pillar with their skins. Many within the border of my own land I flayed, 
and spread their skins on the walls. I cut off the limbs of the officers and royal officers who had rebelled. Three thousand captives I burned with fire. Their corpses I formed into pillars. From some I cut off their hands and their fingers, and from others I cut off their noses, their ears, and their fingers. Of many I put out their eyes. I made one pillar of the living and another of heads. I bound their heads to posts round the city. This was a bloodthirsty city. They didn't think anything of killing people. And ladies and gentlemen, I am fearful because those numbers that we just read are nothing compared to how many babies we're killing in the United States every year. We're a bloodthirsty nation. We're involved in just killing life and we don't think anything about it. That was their first issue. They are a bloody city. Secondly, they were a city full of lies. Verse 1 says, completely full of lies. Completely full of lies. So what you have here is you've got the capital city. You have these political leaders. They're smooth-talking politicians. And these smooth-talking politicians know how to operate, but all they do is tell a bunch of lies. And they were lying to people. They were lying in deals they were making. They would not look at the people and tell them the truth. They lied about things to promote their own agenda. They lied to other nations. They lied to each other. And they lied to their own people. I heard someone say, we have right now in Congress 175 members in Congress who have law degrees. 175 members in Congress who have law degrees. They have sworn an oath. Now, there's a debate on whether or not they've sworn an oath to tell the truth. Because defense attorneys are known to not tell the truth. They're out to try to create an atmosphere where you don't know what the truth is. But there is an oath that they take that says we'll maintain truth. So what we have here is we have the highest courts in the land. We have the Congress of the United States. You have a bunch of leaders there. 175 of them have law degrees. How many of them do you think are looking at people and say, let's get to the truth of this? Let's tell you the truth. They're just like these guys from Nineveh. They told people that they were okay, they were safe. They told people they were out to look after them. They told people they would protect them. They told them their worship was fine. They told them you can worship anything you want. It doesn't have to be the God of the Bible. Just pick something you want to worship and worship that. It would be rare in this culture of Nineveh to find somebody who would go to the people and say, I'm going to tell you the truth because it was a city full of lies. And if you can find someone today in high positions of power who will actually tell the truth, you're looking at a very rare individual. Because people who get in those positions of power often become people full of lies. God said that's why they're getting a woe judgment. They're a bloody city. They're full of lies. And thirdly, they prey on people. Verse 1 says, her prey never departs. These leaders had figured out ways to get more and more from people. They knew how to work the system. They knew how to take advantage of people and get as much as they possibly could. They could do it through taxes. They could figure out ways to take away from people the thing that they had. Basically, the language here in the Hebrew text would imply they really preyed on people through extortion. 
They use deceptive means to get things from people. They scheme. They form their ways to trap people and get what they wanted. Do you see these people? They're ruthless. They're not interested in God. They're not interested in God's word. They prey on people. And the people couldn't escape. They couldn't get away from this. In fact, the people never departed from that because Nineveh would either track them down and put them out or kill them. I mean, that was probably a threat since they were such a bloody city. Or they would just take more from other people. I mean, they just preyed on people. That's what they did. These were the leaders, the leaders of this nation, the leaders of this city that were just preying on people. Fourthly, they were involved in that which was continually immoral. Verse 4, all because of the many harlotries of the harlot, the charming one. Three times in verse 4, the theme of sexual immorality is mentioned. We learn in the Old Testament and the New Testament that when a person flaunts immorality or sexual immorality reaches a level where God has seen enough, it's ripe for the ferocious judgment of God. It's just ripe for the ferocious judgment of God. We learn that from Romans chapter 1, and you certainly learn it here in Nahum chapter 3. Now, I want to talk to people who are immoral, not necessarily in this sanctuary tonight, but people who may hear this that are all over the world. I want to talk to people that are immoral because I'm going to tell you something no politician's going to tell you. And I'm not doing this, believe you me, to win popularity contests, because what I'm about to say isn't going to make me real popular. But I have a message for the homosexual transgender movement. You're being told by politicians a lie. You're being told by politicians of this nation that it's just okay. We'll support you. We're behind you. We'll give you funds and we'll help you go on with life. You just go ahead and go your own way. It's fine. It's going to put you in hell. Understand this. Understand this. It's going to put you in hell. They're not going to tell you this, but that's what the Word of God says. Unless you come to terms with Jesus Christ and you're willing to trust him as your Savior, you're going to end up burning in hell. And we're studying that subject. That is not a pleasant place where you want to be, where you want to end up. So we would encourage you by telling you the truth, turn to the Lord. Turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. Acknowledge the fact that you're in sin, because that's what the Bible calls it. It's sin. Turn to the Lord and watch what God will do with your life. Because when you go through the scriptures, whether it be the book of Nahum or the book of Romans or any other book in the scripture, like the book of Revelation, a nation, a state, or individual who is about to be judged by God, reaches a point where they're flaunting their immoral behavior. They're parading it in the streets. They're not even ashamed of it. They're flaunting it. And the text says in verse 4, they make it look charming. Man, they make it look charming. Which would indicate that they make it look seductive. They make it look good. They make immorality look like it's just leading you to happy land. It's leading you to the judgment of God. Do you understand this? It's leading you to the judgment of God. So here was Nineveh, the capital city, with all of its power and all of its pomp, and it was immoral. God said, I'm wiping you out, and he does wipe them out. Now, the fifth reason why this capital city and power was going to receive a woe judgment is it was demonic. 
In verse 4, it says, and families by her sorceries. Families by her sorceries. Now, this place was not only a place that was immoral and bloody. This is demonic stuff. And in all reality, when you see a bunch of people that are involved in immorality, they're promoting it, and you see a bloody city that they don't care a lot about life, and when you see others that are preying on people, that is demonic stuff. But what is specifically brought out here is that this city was given to satanic sorcery and witchcraft. This is odd because you don't see this mentioned a lot. But obviously, this city of Nineveh was given to some form of the dark arts. In fact, archaeologists have found in some of the discoveries they've made in that Iraq area that there were people there, a lot of people that practiced witchcraft. They found tablets that actually show sorcery incantations and demonic fortune telling. So closely connected to this flaunted immorality and closely connected to this bloody city and this preying upon people is a lot of demonic activity. And notice what the text says about it in verse 4. They sell it to the nations by their harlotries. They actually sell this stuff to the nations. In other words, they peddle it. They peddle it. They promote it. They were promoting immorality. They were promoting their demonism, their Satanism. They were promoting it. And they were promoting this activity to other people. They were telling them idolatry is okay. Worship anything you want. They were telling them immorality is okay, it's just fine. They were telling them brutality is okay. This is demonic stuff. And what the people didn't realize is, you know, we're being led to the judgment of God. The devastating judgment of God. Now, I believe we're nearing the rapture of the church. I don't think it's any coincidence that we are seeing. There's just demonic satanic stuff. I mean, there's movies. I, by the way, hopefully you've taken this business where you don't set any unclean thing before your eyes. This is October. I hope you made it a year. And if you did, go another year. Man, you get stronger and stronger every year to do this. If you didn't make it, start over and do it again. But I'm telling you, I'll be watching something and there's these advertisements for some satanic movie there's this creepy music that comes on here there seems to be right now an escalation of things that are promoting witchcraft and satanism and horoscope and psychic stuff and seances you stay away from that stuff because that's the kind of thing that will bring the judgment of god there's a lot of occult activity And there was a lot of occult activity in this capital city that was being practiced by these political leaders. And I probably would say, although I don't know this for sure, but if you could get behind the scenes of what's going on in some of the capital cities of the world, including Washington, D.C., you'd probably be shocked at the kinds of things that are taking place in some of those places. Satan worship, demon worship, occult activity, pentagrams, lighting candles, all kinds of weird stuff. And those kinds of things are the reason why God says, I'm bringing a woe judgment. When a leadership promotes this kind of stuff, it's not the normal pattern of life. It's not even normal depravity. When you have leaders that are promoting things like 
immoral behavior and idolatry and demonism. It's something that is setting the nation up for the judgment of God. This is a dark, depraved, evil sin. God's going to judge it and he'll crush those who do it. Which brings us to the second part of the text. The woe judgment God's going to bring on Nineveh. Now, when you look at what God promises he's going to do here, He basically says, I'm going to lay out exactly what it is I intend to do to this place. And he doesn't mince words. He lays this thing out. And I'll tell you, when we go down through this, what you don't want to do is arrogantly assume you have immunity. You don't want to just automatically assume, I don't have to stay on top of things or stay disciplined in my own life because I'm immune from this. No, no, it's not quite how it works. You'll see in just a second, when God decides to destroy something, there are judgments that hit people and they hit them hard. When we look at a text like this, you say, man, I don't want to get near that stuff because I don't want God tracking me down. I'm going to stay far away from that stuff. Now, there are three judgment facts that are brought out in this text. First of all, the judgment would be audibly intimidating. Notice verse 2, the noise of the whip, the noise of the rattling of the wheel, galloping horses and bounding chariots. God said, I want you to know, when I decide to set my judgment, you'll know it. Why? You're going to hear it. This is not going to be some quiet judgment like he did to Sennacherib when these guys go to sleep at night ready to attack Jerusalem and they just die in their sleep. And I said, that's not going to work like that. When I send my judgment, it's going to come with great sound and it's going to come with great speed. I mean, it's kind of like when a tornado is about to hit. It kind of gets quiet, then all of a sudden you hear this thunderous roar and you realize, oh my goodness, something devastating is on the way. God said, that's what I'm going to do. I'm not going to send my judgment in some secret, silent, night-like way. It's going to be loud. It's going to be scary. And it's significant to note that in the Great Tribulation, and we've gone through that Great Tribulation in Revelation chapter 6 to 19, when God is pouring out his wrath on the world, it's coming straight out of heaven. There are these multiple instances that we saw when we went through that where God is just literally sounding shouts and thunder. It's just roaring from heaven. He's making things terrifying on this earth. When God sends his judgment, it's not going to be quiet. When God says, I've reached a point where I'm judging this nation, I'm judging this city, I'm not going to do this just quietly behind the scenes. It's coming with a roar. Secondly, the judgment's going to be deadly. Verse 3, horsemen charging, swords flashing, spears gleaming, many slain, a mass of corpses, and countless dead bodies. They stumble over the dead bodies. Three deadly descriptions are given here, and I want to say this about the judgment of God. It's scary business. It's scary business. Now, you can go to a place where they'll slap you on the back, never teach you this. They'll tell you God's a loving God and he just loves everything. You look and analyze what's said here. It's intimidating. And there are three deadly descriptions that God gives of what he's going to do. First of all, horsemen are going to charge the people. That's what he says in verse 3, horsemen charging. You know, a few weeks ago, I did a memorial service, and there was a man at that service who'd gone to college on a football scholarship And I asked him what position he played, and he said that he was a running back. 
And I asked him, when you were running at full speed and a guy was running to tackle you, did it ever go through your mind, this collision's going to hurt? He said, no, I never thought this collision was going to hurt me. I always thought this collision's going to hurt him. It's going to hurt the guy trying to tackle me. What God is basically saying here is I'm going to send this potent collision to you, an unstoppable force, and it's going to hurt you. You're not going to stop it. It's going to run over you. It's going to destroy you. The horsemen will charge the people. Secondly, swords will cut the people. He says in verse 3, swords flashing, spears gleaming. We're talking about that word for sword there is a hera. It's a war weapon. This is a weapon that was used in hand-to-hand combat killer type of activity. I mean, when you have a soldier and even God in Ezekiel says, I'll pick up that sword and I'll slay people. And when God draws this sword, and when God starts attacking people, attacking those that are not right with him, attacking those who have mocked him, they're not going to be able to stop this. There's nothing they can do to defend themselves. Thirdly, spears would stab the people. That's what he says in verse 3, swords flashing, spears gleaming. When God sends his judgment, people die by ruthless means and ruthless powers. The result will be, God says, a massive amount of dead bodies. The number of dead bodies would be so massive that you could not count them. You would just stumble over them. Listen, this is something that people just don't understand about God because they don't want to understand this about God. But when God sends judgment, people die. People die. They don't understand this about the Lord because they just want some God who's just this loving, floating being who just tolerates anything. But when he reaches a point where he sends judgment, people die. And the third judgment fact is this judgment's going to be humiliating. Verses 5 to 7, God says, as he starts off in verse 5, behold, I'm against you. That's the second time he said it. Second time he's warned this city, I'm against you. He says this, this time in the context of a woe judgment. Those are words no one ever wants to hear. It's not just a statement, by the way. This is a declaration. Notice verse 5, I'm against you, declares the Lord. This is a judicial declaration that I'm against you. Now, once he makes a judicial declaration, he's not going to change it. So God says, I want you to understand something. You've reached a point that's so depraved that I am against you. And the reason that this is stressed is because God is emphasizing, I am the Lord of hosts. I have all power in heaven. I have all power on earth. I can control everything in heaven and on earth. And I am over everything in the seen and the unseen world. And I'm going to use my power against you. I'm the Lord of hosts, and I'm going to use my power against you. You have no chance of surviving. It wouldn't matter if one were a political leader or power. It wouldn't matter where the person lives, where the person tries to hide, what bunker the person tries to crawl in. God says, when I make a determination that I'm going to come in this kind of judgment, you're not getting away. I'm going to track you down. You get involved in immoral things and reach a certain point, get involved in demonic activity, you take advantage of people, you steal from people, you lie to people, and I will come after you and I will track you down. And there are nine humiliating judgment actions that God promises I'll take. Number one, 
I'll strip you bare for all the nations to see. Verse 5, behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord. I'll lift up your skirts over your face and show to the nations your nakedness. What God is saying here is these people have strutted around the world having people almost stand in awe of them. They want to be respected by people in the world. They're not interested in pleasing God. They're not interested in promoting what God would have them promote. They love to get the praise and love the prominence that these leaders, and God says, I'm going to humiliate you before all the people. I literally will strip you down before the people. They'll look at you in that state. Secondly, he said, I'll make you a disgrace, verse 5, and to the kingdoms your disgrace. You know, leaders that are powerful leaders, I mean, they're used to limousines. They're used to fine restaurants, perk treatment, wherever they go. That's what they get used to, that kind of lifestyle. God says, you push me to the limit. You move away from me just far enough, I'll bring you to disgrace. Nothing honorable will be about you that will be left. And I just want to say this to anybody who would listen to this. The most honorable person you can ever become will be due to the fact that you're in a right relationship with the God of the Bible. If you purpose to get into a right relationship with the God of the Bible, he will take you from your disgrace in whatever sin you're in or corruption or guilt. He'll pull you out of that disgrace and he'll give you honor. But if you don't get out of that sin and turn to him, you are a disgrace to him now, and he will make you a disgrace at his judgment. Which brings us to the third action. God would throw filth on them. Verse 6, I will throw filth on you. Well, these people promoted filthy things. They weren't interested in pure things. They'd been involved in abominable filth, and that's the word that's used here. So God said, I'll just throw it right back on you. I'll see to it that you're judged for that. Stand before God on your works, on the works books. Stand before the Lord in judgment without Jesus Christ in your life, and you're going to hear the words, you're filthy, and I'll show you how filthy you are. Your works are as filthy rags. And he'll call up the record and show every single point of time when a person has violated the righteousness of God. I'll throw filth right back on you. The fourth humiliating action is he'll make them vile in verse 6. And he says, and make you vile. That's an interesting word here as shakuts, which indicates you will end up being a total abomination and people will see it. That's what they're going to see about you. You are a total abomination in the way that you lived your life. The fifth humiliating action is I'll make you a spectacle. That's what he says in verse 6, and set you up as a spectacle. You know, leaders love the limelight. They want the pomp and the circumstance. God says, all right, I'll give it to you. Not in the way you want it. I'll make you a spectacle for my judgment. I will show you for the filth and the depravity that you were. I will bring you to total condemnation. The sixth action is God would cause all to see to shrink back from them. Verse 7, and it will come about that all who see you will shrink from you. See, people would see them when God judges them, and they're so proud. These people of Nineveh, these leaders of Nineveh were so proud, and God said, I'm going to bring a judgment that's so severe on you that people are going to look at you and be disgusted. 
and appalled by what they see. When they look at you, they'll just look at you in disbelief that they even listen to you. And then the seventh action is God would cause all to see to acknowledge the devastation in verse 7. Nineveh is devastated. Well, that'd be pretty hard to disagree with when you saw the city just wiped out, which is exactly what God did do. He brought powers, and they did exactly what's predicted here. He brought those powers into Nineveh. They leveled that city, and God said, you have to stand there and look at this and say, well, God did do what he said he was going to do. The eighth action is God will see to it that no one will grieve for her. Verse 7, who will grieve for her? Nobody. That's something that godless powers and people just don't realize. When they're gone, when they're gone into eternity, nobody's going to grieve for them. People who get in these positions love the praise of people, but when they're gone, nobody's going to grieve for them. In fact, what God said I'll do is I'll have them look at you honestly, and they're going to say, good riddance, glad he's gone. And finally, God will see to it that no one will comfort you. In verse 7, where will I seek comforters for you? Because there aren't any. What God said I'm going to do to Nineveh is I'm going to bring my judgment against Nineveh and against the leadership of Nineveh because they have just taken this nation. They've lied to people. They've killed people. They've preyed upon people. They've pointed them in immoral ways. They've pointed them in idolatrous ways. They've pointed them in demonic and satanic ways. And God said, I'm going to make an example of them. Did he do it? That's exactly what he did to Nineveh. It's exactly what he did. God can do the same thing to the United States. He can do the same thing to Washington. He can do the same thing to leaders in any nation. He can do the same thing to us as individuals. If you want to be the best you can be, if you want to be honorable and successful and clean and blessed, then you stay very serious about your relationship with God and his word. Because God will always protect the remnant of those who love him and serve him. May we pray. If you're here tonight and you've never trusted Christ as Savior, don't leave here without settling that issue. Settle it tonight. Just turn to him and admit you're a sinner. Invite him to come in and save you. Father, we thank you for the scriptures this is one intimidating passage of Scripture. We pray, Lord, for the leaders of our country. We pray that they would realize there's a God they're going to answer to, and I pray that they would take that seriously. I pray that those people in Congress who have law degrees, who swore an oath, I pray that they would be truth-setters, truth-leaders. I pray they'd never lie to their constituency, but you would turn their minds to realize I have a responsibility to say what's right and true. We also pray, Lord, for those people who are involved in depraved sin. They're being lied to. They're not being told the consequences. Lord, we pray that people would come to realize I need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and get out of my sin so that I don't end up in hell. We pray that you use this passage to help accomplish that in Jesus' name. Amen.